I don't remember how many years ago it was. But Alicia came home from school and she was working on some math. It was division. I think it was Alicia. Sarah told me it was Alicia. I said, which kid was it? And she said, Alicia. And uh, she was working on some division, long division. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid in grade school, long division, yeah, I mean, everybody was nervous when you go, oh, we're getting a long division. I think we got scared because of the word long. But we're getting to long division, right? And you know, you know those problems. But you learn this pretty simple method of how to do long division. And, you know, I don't know about the rest of you, but I graduated high school, so clearly I passed long division, amen? Right? So Alicia comes home from school, and she's working on long division, and she has doing this crazy, I, I mean, I'm looking at the paper and I don't understand it. I'm like, this, this is not how you do long division. This, this, this ridiculous system of guessing and then checking the guess and then modifying the guess by the new guess that you're going to make. And then when you get done in the end, you've got to add up all of the guesses. And he's just crazy. And I am growing in patience, but I am not always the most patient guy. And I pretty much had enough while we're going through this. And I, and I just want to choke the teacher. Not really, okay? I'm the master of overstatement, okay? I believe in hyperbole. But anyway, so it was, it was just basic. It was completely different. And it, it took twice as long to solve the problem as it would have. And as I'm trying to show my child, whether it was Alicia or one of the other kids, as I'm trying to show them how division's really done, they started crying. And said, no, Dad, this is how the teacher showed us. And I am like, why? Why do we go back and reinvent division? Right? This is a, this is a time-honored system of division. I was chatting about this illustration with somebody, and you guys might remember this from the 90s. Okay? If you remember it, jump in as soon as you figure it out. Hooked on phonics worked for me. Remember that? Where is Hooked on Phonics nowadays? Like, we came up with this new system to learn how to read like the old system didn't work. And I'm not bashing Hooked on Phonics. Clearly, it worked for some kids, you know. But I mean, really? Really? Do we really need to go back and reinvent some of these basic things? I mean, division, it's basic elementary level math. And yet someone, somewhere, decided to go back and revisit these basic universal math principles that work regardless of the culture you're in. Right? You could be in Japan and do division this way, and it works. Right? You could be in Russia and do division this way, and it works. You could even be in Antarctica with the penguins and do division this way, and it works. Alright. So, but somebody decided to go back and, and, and muddy the water and come up with this ridiculously complicated way of doing division. And, and it took, by the way, a, a whole piece of paper to do one little division problem the way they were teaching it. It was crazy. 
This puts me in mind of our passage of Scripture for today. In this passage of Scripture, the author of Hebrews argues that we need to move on from the basics of the faith into a more mature faith. But why? In order to understand it, let's look at our passage of Scripture today from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. So go ahead, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. You might be reading from something like the NIV or the NASB or the King James Version. And while those are not my favorite, those are fine translations. And you're going to be doing okay with it. But you might notice a little difference in the wording, how how the translators have chose to translate the Greek. So here's what chapter 6, verses 1 through 3 says. Therefore, let us leave or move on from the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings or baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. I want to say it again. I want to read it again. I want you to hear. I'm going to really emphasize some words here. Therefore, let us Leave or move on from the elementary doctrines of Christ, the grade school doctrines of Christ, and go on to maturity. Let that hit you. Because he lists five baby doctrines. And I want to show you what happens when we don't move on in today's message. Let's pray. Father, you clearly tell us through the author of Hebrews to move on. To move away. Not to not not believe them. Not to not ever teach them to new Christians. But to not stay at this place and keep pondering the same things over and over and over again but to build our faith to grow to go from elementary school to middle school to high school to college to life in the in the marketplace lord of faith and to grow in our faith and not just sit there and be stunted in our growth really that's the passage that we preached through the last five weeks about uh, some of us ought to be teachers by now lord we see that there's issues with this And so we ask you in a mighty and a powerful way to speak, to teach us today, to help us to grow, to help us to see the danger, the the just the horrible danger of staying with these baby doctrines and how it actually warps our faith. And we ask it in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen. At first glance, it's probably difficult to see what my illustration about math has to do with our passage today. But let me expound a little more on the illustration so that you can see why I'm talking about this. Okay? Somebody somewhere with a PhD in math decided to ponder elementary mathematical concepts in lieu of doctoral concepts. Somebody somewhere who had their doctorate in math decided to sit around and think about stuff that grade schoolers are supposed to be thinking about instead of stuff that doctors are supposed to be thinking about. And they came up with a new system. Right? 
They came up with this new way of doing things because they didn't move on. Now, if, if we think about a person that's got a doctorate in math sitting around pondering long division that you learn in grade school, that's probably inappropriate, right? Like, seriously, you paid all this money and spent all this time to sit around and think about long division? Really? To sit around, and, and let's just say you have a doctorate of education, okay? Mathematics education. And so, oh, well, I need to ponder because I need to think about how to teach these kids. Uh, I don't know. Do you really need to go back and reinvent a system that works? You know? I mean, sometimes we need to reinvent systems that don't work or don't work well. But, I mean, we have a system that's worked well. We have one of the most thriving economies on the face of the planet inside the United States. Contrary to what everybody might want to say, I think our math at grade school when we were all growing up worked. You know, they say we can't compete in the global marketplace, but... A person who makes minimum wage in the United States is among the top 10% of the world's wealthy. If you make minimum wage working 40 hours a week in the U.S., you are in the top 10% of the world's wealth holders, financial wealth holders. We are fabulously wealthy. Now, we don't think about it with the minimum wage thing because we're comparing ourselves to people who have more than us. But let's look at the other 90% of the world that we have more than, financially. I think we're competing in the global marketplace. But I could be wrong. But I don't think so. I, I think that it's dangerous, though, to get back and, and to get wrestling with this kind of stuff because weirdness just comes out of it, right? Because this person with this PhD is, is contemplating this stuff, and the result was that something simple became overly complex, this doctor or the group of doctors that came up with this new method put themselves to the task of solving problems that, quite frankly, had already been solved. They were solving problems that had already been solved. And so they had to invent a new way of doing this and, and, and overturn the long history of math. They broke rule number one. They broke the KISS principle. Do you know what the KISS principle is? Raise your hand if you do. Say it with me. Keep it simple, stupid. Right? They broke the KISS principle. They took something that was simple and made it overly complex. Why? Because they put their mind to something that was really they learned in grade school that they didn't get a doctorate in long division. They got a doctorate in either education or complex mathematics. I mean, when I was sharing this illustration with my wife and preparing for it, who remembers the TV show Numbers? They're like, my wife's like, yeah, they should be like Charlie, you know, the guy off Numbers, right? Who's using all this complex math to solve crimes and predict where it's going to happen next. I don't know if that really works or not, but, you know, put your mind to something like that, Right? Let's not go back and waste our doctorate reinventing a process of mathematics that, quite frankly, elementary school kids could explain. Because when you do, this in turn results in a person needing a doctorate in order to explain what a grade schooler used to be able to explain. Right? Like my fourth grader used to be able to explain this. But now I have to have a doctorate to explain it. Because it's just that confusing. 
Hence, wanting to choke the teacher. Have you ever had this happen in life where one of your kids came home from school and, and like something that was so simple, they muddied the water and they made it so complex and so difficult? Have you done that? Give me a, give me a hand, okay? Okay, I know it's just not me, amen? Right? Guys, this is very similar to what is happening in the church today. This is very similar to what is happening in the church today with the faith. Our passage lays out several elementary doctrines that do not merit our deep times of reflection. Yes, I just said something crazy to some of you. I said elementary doctrines of the faith do not merit your deep reflection. Because you are going to overly complicate them. You are going to turn them into craziness. Like long division, they are simple enough that a grade schooler can explain them in sufficient detail. When my son was in like fourth or fifth grade, Wayne King was the pastor of the Christian and Missionary Alliance Church that we first came into the Alliance in, and where I became the associate pastor of. And he sat down and he asked my son about some of these doctrines, trying to figure out where he came. He walked back and he goes, wow, your son's got his soteriology really figured out. Soteriology is the $5 word for the doctrine of salvation. Right? This is one of these doctrines. What, what was that? So, you know, enough out of the peanut gallery, Stacy. I'm just teasing. So, anyways, you know, my son could explain this in sufficient detail, but here's what happens as modern Christians. Rather than accepting the truth of these classic doctrines, we've decided instead to ponder the deeper meaning of them. And in turn, this pondering has brought about some strange turn of events in today's church. Okay? That's what's happened when we sit here and ponder these elementary doctrines. When we sit here and, and really, oh, we've got to come to understand this in a really deep way. We don't come to understand it in a really deep way. We muck it up. We make it incomprehensible. We actually make it where people cannot understand it and we're quite frankly, we're in danger of those people going to hell because we're making it so complicated. One of the doctrines is salvation by faith and repentance. Read there in verse 2, or excuse me, verse 1. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. It's the first elementary doctrine he lists. Salvation by faith and repentance. This does not need to be pondered. This does not need to be wrestled with. How does this work? It does for the brand new Christian to understand it when they're a grade schooler in Christ. But then they need to move on. Let me just give you one example of how this works when we ponder this. Now, I know some genuinely born-again Catholics, though they are very few. The Catholic Church has pondered salvation by faith and repentance and come up with an idea that now it's available, salvation is available through what Jesus Christ did on the cross, as long as you take communion, you've been confirmed inside the church, you've been baptized, you go to monthly penance or weekly penance, 
to confessional and you get and you confess your sins to the priest who tells you to go do your Hail Marys and your Our Fathers. And oh, by the way, you're probably not going to be good enough. You're going to end up in purgatory where you're going to pay for your sins. But wait a minute. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works to faith in Christ. Church, when we say our fathers and Hail Marys and things like that, those are works. When we think we have to be baptized, like there are certain groups out there that teach that we must be baptized in order to be in heaven, that's works. When we think we're going to end up in purgatory to pay for it, to pay for our sin, that's works. See, somebody sat around thinking about something they shouldn't have thought about and pondering some thing that really wasn't that deep. I mean, it's really like this. I mean, it's this simple. It's this simple. Let me see here. Ellie, come here. Please. I promise I won't embarrass you. Okay, fine. Jacob, come here. Come here. Ellie's like, dude, you just kicked me under the bus. I am not coming up there. You are fat and you look hungry. (laughs) Jacob, can I ask you a question? If I had a free gift of salvation, let's just say this is salvation, and I'm Jesus, and I'm holding out to you as a free gift. In order for it to be a gift, what do you have to do? Take it. it. What happens if you try to pay for it? Is it a free gift? No. Okay, that's it. Thanks. (laughs) He said he just takes it. it, if, If you just take it, and yeah, that's it. And but if you pay for it, is it a free gift? No. That's salvation by repentance from dead works and faith. That's it. There's no more to it. It's that easy. Thank you, Jacob, for proving my point. High five. Yes. It is simple. No further pondering required. Now, it is mind blowing that God would do that for us. But it is not complicated. Another doctrine that is complicated here is baptism of the believer. This word in in different translations, it's it's actually translated uh, not in verse 2 about instructions about washings or instructions about baptisms. Okay? This is baby doctrine stuff. Okay? When we ponder baptism and make it this deep doctrine, this, well, you know, you better be really sure about Jesus before you get baptized. Okay? Then what happens is droves and droves of Christians never get baptized. Instead of this being something that happens at the time of conversion, many churches, and even Alliance churches, unfortunately, you have to have an 8 to 16 week class on baptism. Uh, you got to think about it for a year or a year and a half. And, and then eventually you can get baptized, you know, if you can answer all the baptism questions. Guys, Philip is walking down the road. Do, 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 do. Ethiopian eunuch is coming along in a chariot. He's reading the scroll of Isaiah. Philip's like, hey, dude, what you reading? I'm reading Isaiah. Kind of confused. Hey, I can explain that to you. Oh, you can? Sweet. Come on and get up. I think it was really a smooth move of Philip to hitchhike. (laughs) But anyways, so Philip gets up in the chariot. He's smooth. You know, 
he goes through and he starts explaining who Jesus is. He does not, it, by the way, I challenge you to find anywhere in this passage of Scripture, in any translation, where it says explicitly that he explains baptism. It just says he explains who Jesus is starting from there. The Ethiopian eunuch's response is, well, here's water, why should I not be baptized? It doesn't explicitly state that he explained baptism. But here he's talking to a lost guy and he just he had to have explained it. He had to have brought it up. Amen? I mean, doesn't it logically follow? Otherwise, why does the Ethiopian... Go read the part of Isaiah he was reading. There's nothing about baptism there. Right? Why does he bring it up? Because it's just an elementary doctrine of the faith. Hey, it's an elementary doctrine of American marriage. You get married... And at the ceremony, the preacher or the justice of the peace, whoever it is, or Elvis, if you're in Vegas, says, you got the ring? Put it on her finger. You got the ring? Put it on his finger. I mean, it's so elementary that even Beyonce gets it. If you like it, then you should have put a ring on it. Right? Okay, so it's simple, right? This is baptism. If you are in love with Jesus and you've repented of your sins, get wet, friends. Get dunked. Yes, by immersion. If you got sprinkled, I'm not saying you're going to hell if you got sprinkled. I'm just saying, baptism, it tells us in Scripture, is associated with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. We're identifying with Him. We're buried under the water or raised a new life. I kind of find it hard to be buried if I get sprinkled. But that's okay if you got sprinkled as a believer. Fine. I won't sprinkle you. I'm going to dunk you if you come to get baptized by me. Unless you have a medical condition where you can't go under the water all the way, like ear problems, different things like that. But this is simple. Jesus says, if you like it, put a ring on it. Amen? If you love me, Follow me. He says it in the Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Teach them to obey and baptize them. It's part of the Great Commission. I am saying when we don't do this, we are thumbing our nose at Jesus. Why did it happen? Because somebody figured they needed to sit around and think about it. They thought too long about baptism. And they made it too hard. The next one he mentions here is the laying on of hands. This doctrine is modeled by Jesus and the disciples as they pray for people. Right? I mean, Jesus, it was pretty simple. It's pretty simple. Leper comes to Jesus. You, you know, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus says, I will. Lays hands on him and prays for him. Right? Lays hands on blind people, prays for them. Okay. Um, Simon the sorcerer, I believe it was. I could have the name wrong here. Realized that the conveying of the Holy Spirit was given by the laying on of hands. And he warps it a little bit because he probably sits back and thinks about it and goes, uh, can I, get, can I like give some money for that? To be able to do that to people? And they were upset because like, dude, you can't pay to have this. This is a gift of the Spirit. Do you know what this has resulted in? People don't want their 
elders in their church to lay hands on them. They don't want other people to lay hands on them. It, altar calls are like out of style. But the scripture is very clear. We see this over and over and over again in the, in, the, in the New Testament. Them laying hands on people. By the way, we see it over and over and over again in the Old Testament. People laying hands on people. Reaching out there, touching their shoulder, touching, praying for them. I mean, sometimes Jesus even like touches the afflicted spot. Oh, you got blindness? Okay. Mud. Boop, boop. Touch it on his eyes. It's kind of gross. I got it. But, he, you know, it's not, simp- or it's not complicated. It's pretty, it's pretty doggone simple. But we sit back and we're like, oh, you know, Jesus did this. By the way, he sent out 70 disciples two by two to go out and cast out demons, pray for people, heal them, all of these different things. They were laying hands. This is not when we ponder this doctrine of laying on of hands, it becomes a ministry of the elders only. Uh, no. I know in James it says, let them call for the elders of the church and have them anoint you with oil. By the way, if I anoint you with oil, I probably touched you. But it wasn't, that wasn't restricting it to just elders because we have the rest of the New Testament where people who aren't elders are doing it. Now, by the way, I'm not saying it's prescriptive. I'm saying it's descriptive because sometimes they just look at, oh, silver or gold, I got none. What I do have in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. It didn't say reading that. He just looked at him and said it to him, right? But we made this some complicated thing. Now, tons of churches don't do it. We've made it weird. Now, tons of churches don't pray for the sick. There are entire denominations, and yes, I can name them for you if you'd like me to, that teach that healing is not available in the present age. Because we thought too long and too hard about this. And we've explained why the power died out with the apostles and why all this doesn't happen anymore. I think they've thought about laying hands too much. I think they've overcomplicated it. Jesus says the gift of the Spirit is for you and for your children and your children's children. He wasn't saying for three generations and then it's done. He was basically saying like the same thing. He said, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? Nope. Seven times 70. Right? He wasn't given a specific number. He was saying this is a permanent thing. But yet churches don't do it. But can I tell you this? You as a believer, when you go into your elementary faith, you believe healing's available. I guarantee you. That's why you ask me to pray for your sick grandma or your sick aunt. Your spirit, which is born again, if you're a born again believer, you have this renewed spirit. It is alive in Christ Jesus. And your spirit knows it's available. And it's like, hey, ask the people to pray. See, we overcomplicate it, but there's whole churches that don't do it. By the way, the churches that teach that healing's no longer available go to their Wednesday night prayer meeting. They pray for sick people. They officially teach the doctrine of healing and laying on of hands is gone, but they still pray for sick people because they know something in there is not right. The fourth doctrine is the resurrection of the dead. Friends, it's this easy. Jesus died, was buried, and resurrected. And the scriptures say to prove that we too will be resurrected. 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians talks about this. In one place it says that those who are fallen asleep in Christ are by no means the least, 
but the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we will be transformed. We're all getting resurrection bodies. Hallelujah. I am not going to be fat and ugly. Amen? Okay, this is not a complex doctrine. Right? But somebody named Joseph Smith, for example, sat around contemplating this. And he came up with this whole weirdness about the resurrection. By the way, Joseph Smith is the founder of the Mormon church. Came up with this whole weirdness about the resurrection. And the Mormon church at this point teaches that at the resurrection, the Holy Spirit gets a body back. The Holy Spirit didn't lack a body to begin with. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God, is the Spirit of Christ. One God, infinitely perfect, existing eternally in three persons. Right? They sat around and contemplated this resurrection thing so much that the Mormon church, which, by the way, I will boldly proclaim to you, is not Christian. Okay? And I say that because I don't want you to get drug off into Mormonism. I love you. Okay? I'm not trying to beat up Mormons. I love them too. I've got a really good relationship going with a guy that's a, that was a Mormon missionary. He's back in school now. He and I are still talking over email. And he's wrestling with stuff that I'm giving him. I know God is passionately in love with this guy. Okay? So I'm not trying to beat him up. What they teach at the resurrection, that if you get your, your marriage uh, oh, consecrated in the temple in the Mormon temple in Utah, that you as a male, males only, you will become a god. And you will be able to pass the celestial guards after the resurrection and go to a new planet in the universe with your wife or wives that were consecrated there, and you will be able to populate that new planet with your offspring, and you will be the god over that planet. My friends, this is what happens when you sit around thinking about the resurrection too much. Okay? Because when I just read in Scripture, it talks about us being resurrected with Christ, and then it talks about us in eternity in heaven, worshiping around His throne, looking at Him, Jesus Christ, the God, the Father, the Holy Spirit, they are the center of heaven. And it's all about worshiping them. When we sit around and ponder the resurrection too much, we come away with weird books like heaven is for real. Friends, heaven is for real, but that book is not. It does not line up with Scripture, not hardly any of it. Be afraid of that book and other books like it. Heaven is not a family reunion. We do not get halos, we do not get wings, and we do not ride rainbow ponies. He talks about that at one point. There is not, we do not all get these battle gear in heaven. When you go read the book of Revelation, Jesus is the one at the battle of Armageddon, which is not the last battle, by the way, has a sword and it slays all over everybody. And we're just riding behind him. Go read it. It says that point blank. That's the resurrection, my friends. And then at the, then after the millennial kingdom, there's another battle at Gog and Magog and it's Jesus that calls fire from heaven. Friends, we don't fight the battle. Jesus does. Anyways, and I'm not, and, and if you've read Heaven is for Real, I'm not trying to, to criticize you or beat you up. My wife's read it. Okay? I'm just saying, this is what happens when you sit around and ponder the resurrection too much. Heaven is for real. But Scripture is very clear. Heaven is about Jesus. It's not about me. David Platt, and thank you, Allie, for posting it. David Platt is the one who put, who was talking about this at Secret Church, something they do on the weekends down there. He was teaching on this. 
And Allie posted a little four-minute thing on Facebook about it where he's, he talks about, you know, there, we see four encounters in Scripture where people have visions of heaven and they are overwhelmed with the magnificence and the awe of God. Right? And then he points out, and then I'm going to leave the resurrection thing alone, and I'm going to shut up and go to the next one. And then he points out that the Scriptures clearly say that nobody has ever gone to heaven and come back. He said, he says, Who has ascended to heaven and come down? No one except for the one who descended from heaven. Jesus. And now I'm going to leave the resurrection alone to let you wrestle with that. But don't wrestle too long because that's an elementary doctrine. And then my favorite, eternal judgment. Right? Eternal judgment is listed there. The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Somebody sitting around pondering eternal judgment has made the doctrine of eternal judgment far, far, far too complicated. One of those in recent times who has done that is a guy that God passionately loves but has some really warped theology named Rob Bell. And he wrote a book called Love Wins. And he teaches in the book, Love Wins, that hell is eventually emptied through post-mortem evangelism, that is evangelism after we die, that God's love will eventually empty hell and eventually everybody gets into heaven. That there is no eternal judgment. That eternal didn't really mean eternal. I think he thought about it too much. I think he thought about it. Jesus said, they have their place in a lake of fire. All thieves and all liars, right? But there's a place in, in the Gospels where he says, where the fire's never quenched and the worm never dies. Does anybody remember that in Scripture anywhere? Amen? Right? Does God... Now, why did he, he, why did he think about it? Too? He thought about it and he said, well, a loving God couldn't possibly send someone to hell for eternity. And he thought about it way too much and he came up with a way that he could stomach the thought of hell. Listen to me. A loving God doesn't send people to hell for eternity. We send ourselves there because he's offering the free gift of salvation, just like I held that out to Jacob, and people have refused to take it. And so we choose to go on our own. Romans, the first five chapters of Roman, clear, Romans clearly spells this out. That people go to hell because they willingly choose to go to hell. They rebel against the God because they willingly chose to rebel against the God. Not because of ignorance. In the first three chapters of Romans, it says nobody is ignorant. Jews, they had the oracles. And, and my friends, if you are a Jew by national descent, raise your hand. And it's okay if you are. Okay, nobody. So you all are Gentiles as far as Romans chapter 2 is concerned. He's talking about two types of people, Jews and Gentiles. You're a Gentile. Amen? Can I get an amen? Okay. So you're Gentile. So he said that the Gentiles show that the work of the law, that's God's law, is written on their heart when they do by nature what the law requires. Right? And their conscience either excuses or accuses them. If you've got a conscience, raise your hand. Should be every hand should be up. Everybody's got a conscience. We knowingly rebel against the God. And so when we do that, God has to punish. He doesn't have to. Like in the sense of somebody's making him. But God punishes sin. Because God is good. God is holy and He punishes sin. 
Now he said, I'll punish it, I'll take it out on Jesus. And if you, and if you will receive that gift, it's paid for. Otherwise, you're going to pay for it yourself. That's eternal judgment. It's that simple. Let me just talk about another thing about what happens when we think about eternal judgment. Okay? The lead singer of Jars of Clay in the last couple of weeks has come out in support of homosexual marriage because he sat around thinking about judgment too much. And he has now likened something that the Bible clearly calls sin. And by the way, listen, if you're struggling with homosexuality, the Lord loves you. You can, and I know that some of you are going to be shocked when I say this, a person can be a homosexual and get saved and still struggle with homosexuality. God is going to clean it out of their life when he's ready. Okay, and he's going to clean it out at some point. But I struggle with some sins as a believer, right? You struggle with some sins as a believer. So God will take care of it in his timing. Yes, it's a sin. But so is dishonoring my parents. So is lying. And we don't just say, well, somebody lied, so they must not be a Christian. We say, man, God's still working in their lives. So understand what I'm saying. I'm saying truth with grace. Okay? And I know that's hard for some of us to stomach, but, but it's the truth. But he sat around pondering this too long, and he's likened it to being black or being a woman. Neither of which the Bible says is sin. Amen. Right? I mean, being a woman is close. No, not really. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. No, <laughs> but, but he's likened it to that. He's likened it to that. When it doesn't, and so he's like, yeah, well, we, you know, and he goes through this whole thing and he's thought, because he cannot think, he, he's thinking about eternal judgment, he's thinking, well, God, you know, God's going to tell people they can't be this way. And I mean, he's thinking about eternal judgment too much. We can't be thinking about eternal judgment this long. God clearly says that he's going to punish sin. And He's either going to take it out on Jesus, which he did 2,000 years ago at the cross, or he's going to take it out on you. you got to think about that. But don't think about it too long. The reality is the Bible clearly states things such as these, such as the homosexuality thing, and, and the lead singer of Jars of Clay. And you got to understand, if you don't know who Jars of Clay is and you're a Christian... I mean, I didn't grow up in the church, and I know who Jars of Clay are. It's one of the most popular Christian bands out there. And he says in his tweets, as people are tweeting back and forth with him, somebody's trying to explain to him, man, the Bible clearly says, and he says, I can't stand it when people say the Bible clearly says, because most people are reading the Bible wrong. He has to start explaining that people are reading the Bible wrong to take away the clear teachings of Scripture, because he's thought about judgment too long. But the Bible does clearly state things. There aren't deep things to ponder. There are plenty of passages that spell out what sin is and what sin is not. And if we sit around in deep reflection, overturning the faith of our fathers instead of moving deeper in the Word, then we're in trouble. Friends, there was a time in the church not too long ago where we did not necessarily try to overturn every doctrine that our fathers had taught. When Grandma said that there was one way to God, that no man comes to the Father but by Jesus Christ, We knew Grandma had read her scriptures and we knew that she was right and we accepted that. 
But we sit around thinking about eternal judgment, and so now we've come up with that there's lots of ways there. All paths lead to God. Relativism is rampant in America and even inside the church. we got to stop thinking about this stuff so much and start saying, okay, these are the basic things. Does that mean that we don't have meditation and reflection on the Scriptures? Absolutely not. But as I show you the homework for today, if you, you need to take notes in the homework section because there's really some specific things I want you to look at in the homework section today. Okay? I want you to see why it's important that we just accept these basic doctrines and not ponder them too deeply. Not make them too complicated. The homework for Monday uses the basic doctrine of baptism and the resurrection of the dead to help us understand the deeper truth of the sanctified life. That's Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. That's Monday's homework. And some of you might be newer and you don't know what homework is. Homework is scriptures that I give to the congregation to read little passages from each day to see if what I'm preaching is true. Yes, I'm that kind of preacher that says, check me and make sure what I'm telling you is right. Don't just accept it because I say it. Because I might lead you into error. His word is our only authoritative rule of faith and practice. So... Chapter 6, verses 1 through 14 of Romans on Monday. It uses the basic doctrine of baptism, that's washings, right? And the resurrection, and it says these things in this passage, by the way, to help you understand the deeper truth of the sanctified life. So that you can ponder the deeper truth of the sanctified life using the baby doctrines as the foundation. Tuesday, Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, uses the basic doctrine of baptism to help explain unity in the body of Christ and an every member ministry. Tuesday's homework uses baptism, the baby doctrine of baptism, to explain unity inside the body of Christ and in every member ministry where every single person in the church is actively engaged and involved in ministry. But we have to have the baby doctrine of baptism first. Okay? Wednesday, Romans 4, 1 through 12. It uses the basic doctrine of repentance from works, of works-based faith, to explain the deeper doctrine of justification by faith. I.e., the imputed righteousness of Christ given to you. You have to understand repentance from works and faith in God to understand the basic little understanding to understand to quit calling yourself a sinner and start calling yourself a saint. That's justification. Okay? If you're born again. Thursday, Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. It's the same as Wednesdays, what it's doing. Basic doctrine of repentance from a works-based faith to explain justification. Why? Two on that. Because I think we really struggle with justification. That's why so many of us feel shamed. Some of us feel shame because there's spiritual bondage going on in our life. We're in bondage to the enemy. But a lot of us are struggling with it because we don't understand justification. And we're ashamed. Friday's homework is Matthew chapter 25, 
verses 31 through 46. It uses the basic doctrine of an eternal hell to explain why we need to reach out and love people with Christ's love in the here and now. We have to understand eternal judgment to know why we need to reach out and love people in the here and now. And if we don't believe in an eternal judgment, if I believe the way that Rob Bell believes that eventually everybody will be one out of hell, then I don't need to try to, to win anybody out of hell right now. But if Jesus is right, and I believe Jesus over Rob Bell, when people die, it's appointed once for man to die and then the judgment. And if they are not born again, if they are not in Christ, they're going to spend an eternity in hell. So if I love them, I'm going to do something about it. I'm just saying we've got to accept these basic doctrines and move into the deeper stuff, the heart of evangelism. And Saturday, 1 Timothy 4, 11 through 16, this one uses the basic doctrine of laying on of hands to explain why Timothy should work diligently to increase his ministry. It uses the basic doctrine of laying on of hands to explain to Timothy why he should work diligently to increase his ministry. A simple baby doctrine that we build on. This is not that these things are not important. They are foundational. But when we stay out there in the foundational stuff, we come up with really weird things. This is why the church in America, in a lot of situations, is what... Christians who want to go deeper say a mile wide and an inch deep. Jesus has called us to a deeper life. I am old school alliance even though I wasn't born back then. We are a deeper life movement. A spirit-filled, Holy Ghost-empowered, deeper life movement where holiness increases in our lives. The kingdom of God has come and not yet fully come. And we need to learn how to operate in this. And we've got to get these baby doctrines back in their proper context as foundations so that we can build that deeper life. My elders who are present, come up here on the stage with me, please. We believe this so much so that I want you to mark this on your calendars. Go ahead and get out a pen and write this down. If you've got a calendar program with you, I want you to mark this on your calendar. March 13th, 14th, and 15th of 2015. March 13th through the 15th of 2015. If somebody says, hey, we're thinking about the weekend of March 13th through the 15th going and doing something, tell them, no, I've got plans. We're bringing in, because we believe in this deeper life movement, we believe in moving on from this little stuff and going deeper with Jesus, we're bringing in Rob Reamer, who is a, a, a professor at Alliance Theological Seminary in the D-Men program, and also a pastor of a church, and we're going to have a deeper life weekend. We're going to teach him about how the Holy Spirit works in the life of believers. Part of that weekend is going to be experiential in the sense that he's going to teach us some stuff, and he's going to say, okay, look, let's tr- let's... How does this work in practice? Let's just go away from theory and get into the practice. All of us have been to some of his teaching. Is that right? Did you go to Butler? No. Oh. No, 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 not Somerset. Butler, a year ago. Oh. Keith is the only one that hasn't been to one of the conferences. 
But, but, we, but we actually, this is what we've been talking about with our wives on Sunday nights for months. We believe this. So much so that we're bringing this in because we believe our church is to go deeper with the Lord. Can I get a witness? Amen? No inch deep, mile wide. Let's get a mile wide and a mile deep. I don't want to shout, I don't want to shrink the width. I remember this song when I was a little kid, and I'm going to end with this and then pray. But let's all sing it together. You guys know it. <laughs> deep and wide, deep and wide, there's a fountain flowing deep and wide. Right? Deep and wide is good. Amen? Amen. Okay, come on. Deep and wide is good. Amen? Amen. Okay, let's pray, and elders, you can go sit back down. Father, just like the author of Hebrews says in verse 3, and we will, we will so do if God permits. Lord, we believe that you are permitting us to go deeper with you. Lord Jesus, we love you. There's no doubt in my mind that the men and the women that are here are here because they love you and they want to go deeper with you. I believe that wholeheartedly. So Father, begin to work inside of our lives and in our hearts that we would not overly complicate some of these simple doctrines and that we pursue you with a relentlessness. We want to go deep. Not so that we can look at everybody and go, well, we're deep Christians and you're shallow Christians. But Lord, so that we can help others go deep as well. We want to know what is the height and breadth and width and depth of your love. We want to ponder you and what you mean here and now in our lives and so we ask you to do it in jesus name and god's people said amen Amen.